you're new with us, we're working our way through uh, Luke's gospel, and uh, we're looking at chapter 18, verses 9 to 17 this morning. Next week, Pastor Shane will lead us in the uh, account of the rich young ruler, and then our plan is to uh, uh, spend four weeks in the Psalms uh, during Advent, and then we'll pick back up with Luke uh, after, after Christmas. So it's a great uh, delight to have you as we uh, look at a, a really foundational text here this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the timelessness of your word and the timeliness of your word. And we pray that today your word would land on good hearts that we may bear fruit to your glory. In Jesus' good name, amen. Life is filled with uh, many questions, but not all questions are of equal importance. You may have asked yourself a rather mundane question this morning, like which pair of socks should I wear? Some of you ask in the marketplace, which line is the shortest? And you've mastered that art. In the airport, I ask, uh, what's the quickest way that I can walk through this terminal? And I think if there was an over 40 league in airport walking, I would be pretty competitive. Um, some of you lament your team's poor performance and you don't even wanna think about it this morning. And you ask, why do we never win? Some of you have been in school for so long and you ask the question of the psalmist. How long, O oh Lord? Then there are weird questions. I was preaching one time at, uh, on Isaiah chapter six on the holiness of God in Western North Carolina at a camp and was preaching my heart out and a lady made a beeline to me and I thought she wanted to ask some spiritual questions and she says, are there bears in the woods? It's like, were you, were you here? Um, they're unforgettable questions. I was in Israel one time and I was at the security line and the uh, security guy came up to me and he said, he took my ID and he says, Tony, uh, do your parents live in uh, Iran? I said, no, they live in Kentucky. And I just never forgot that question. Maybe your kids ask you very inquiring questions like how can a brown cow eat green grass and produce white milk? There are life-changing questions like will you marry me? But here's a question that's before us today. How do you enter the kingdom of heaven? How do you go to heaven? Or to personalize it, am I going to heaven? You see, that answer stretches into eternity. And it's crucial that we get it right. It's crucial that we listen to Jesus and not to pop culture. Nothing today reveals the theological ignorance of our culture, sadly, like the kinds of statements made when someone dies. As one pop icon said at a funeral, we lost a friend, but we gained an angel. And then she said, that's so true. Then it's so not. Now, I'm not gonna answer this question today. How do, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? I want Jesus to answer it for us. Because Jesus is the right person to answer this question. Like we often say, someone is a, an authority on a subject. They have the right to speak on it. Jesus is the authority on the question, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? And we're gonna look at it in these two little stories. In fact, the, the, the question is really, it works itself all the way to chapter 19, verse 10, which, which is kind of the, I've said, the thesis statement of Luke's gospel, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. We have a, a series of stories on how to enter the kingdom of heaven. So you get this story of a, a, a tax collector and a, a Pharisee, and we see that we enter the kingdom of heaven with humility, with humble faith, crying out for God's mercy. 
We see it in the story of the children, that we, we, we enter the kingdom like a child with dependent faith. And then we're gonna see how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven in the following text next week. And then we hear, read the story of the blind beggar and of Zacchaeus. So Luke has been teaching us about the kingdom. We looked at it last week, about the already and not yet kingdom, and how we are to live faithfully in the middle until we see Jesus. And now he's talking to us about how we enter this kingdom. And we enter it with humble faith. We enter it with dependent faith. This is the way God has always operated. As Psalm 18 says, for you save a humble people, but those with haughty eyes you bring down. And so let's look at these two stories briefly. First of all, we enter the kingdom like this tax collector. Verses nine to 14. It's another story that highlights that there will be some surprises on the final day. It's not the religious man that goes down to his house justified before God, but rather this filthy tax collector. It's yet another reversal, another surprise in Luke's gospel. There has been surprise after surprise. It's a virgin who gives a birth to the Messiah. Jesus' birth is revealed to shepherds. The Roman centurion had greater faith than anyone in Israel. It was the sinful woman that was forgiven in Luke 7, not the religious. It was the Samaritan that showed mercy instead of the priest and the Levite. It was the rich man who will not have any treasure in the next life, but poor Lazarus will. It's the Samaritan leper that comes back to give thanks and not the Jews. And here now is another surprise. It's the tax collector that goes down to his house justified before God rather than the religious person. And why is that? Well, Luke, like the parable of the, uh, the persistent widow we looked at last week, gives us the interpretation of this parable right up front when he says that it is directed to those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They trust in their own righteousness. That is, they trust in what they do. And this is so relevant to today because a lot of people believe that God will somehow uh, evaluate our good deeds and our bad deeds, and if our good outweigh our bad, then we can enter the kingdom of heaven. And so God will let all the, the morally good people into heaven. And they sort of position themselves somewhere between Mother Teresa and Ted Bundy and think, since God grades on a curve, then I'm okay. That is trusting in oneself. Well, it's, it's not, quote, good people that enter the kingdom of heaven, it's forgiven people that enter the kingdom. And, and Paul was, was regularly in, in, the, in the epistles, uh, scolding, rebuking, correcting those who were trusting in their own righteousness. Romans chapter 10, verse three, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So righteousness cannot come from within. It can only come from without. It has to come from someone else. It cannot be earned, it must be received. No matter how, <clears throat> excuse me, no matter how many good uh, deeds that we perform, but this is the default mode of our heart this works-based righteousness. Paul had to kill this idea uh, himself in Philippians chapter three. He goes on a list of accomplishments, religious accomplishments that he achieved. And then he says, now that he has received the righteousness that comes through faith, he counts all of that as scubala, as rubbish, as refuge. 
He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God depends on faith. It is a righteousness that is received by faith alone. And the Pharisee was not understanding that. And as a result, he was also treating others with contempt. And his prayer shows that. I notice the parable, how it begins in verse 10. There are two men who go up to the temple to pray. Prayers are made twice a day at the hour of the burnt offering. So this was a public event. The Pharisees were known for their devotion to the Torah. They were known for their set-apartness from people. The tax collectors were known for being filthy and corrupt. They teamed up with the Romans. They were known for their corruption. They're often paired with, or labeled, paired with those who are labeled as sinners or prostitutes. And so here's, here, here's the juxtaposition. Here's the contrast between this Pharisee, this religious person, and this, uh, this, this filthy tax collector. And you see that the Pharisee's prayer is characterized by self-righteousness. You see verses 11 and 12, how his self-righteousness is displayed, first of all, by his self-righteous worship. In verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. He's standing by himself, not wanting to be defiled by other people. He stands at a distance. We, we read uh, from, uh, he's at a distance from the, the tax collector, so he's probably in the front by himself. He's sort of religious social distancing, avoiding religious contamination. He's smug, he's self-satisfied, he's right at the front. All could see him, all could hear him. And since Jesus says he exalts himself, that we probably shouldn't take this, this praise as being sincere, God, I thank you. In fact, the Greek is literally, he prayed to himself or about himself. <laughs> Praying about himself. And you see that in English by the repetition of I, I, I. Five times. This prayer is all about him. The prayer, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes that all I get. There's not one petition in this prayer. It is a prayer about all that he has done. And so he, there is a self-righteous self worship that is taking place, and there's self-righteous comparison that's taking place. Because one of the symptoms of self-righteous pride is comparing yourself to other people in order to make yourself feel superior. He thinks he's morally superior. Now, it's interesting what group of people he puts himself next to. Extortioners the unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. Well, we look pretty good if we want to put ourselves against the worst people in the world. God, I thank you that I'm not a serial killer. <laughs> I thank you that I've not been arrested in a drug cartel. I thank you that my family's never been on the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> now, we are not to compare ourselves with terrorists, but to God's perfect holiness. And that's the problem, right? 
I mean, if you were out in the pasture and you saw some green grass and you, you saw a sheep, the sheep would look really white. But if the snow fell and that snow was as white as could be, you would say, man, that sheep's dirty. And we may look clean next to other people, but compared to the perfect holiness of God, we're in trouble. And you see his self-righteous deeds in verse 12. He goes beyond the law, where he fasts twice a week, and fasting was only required on the Day of Atonement. He goes beyond all that is required for giving. He ties every single thing he acquires. How, how tedious and meticulous. You can imagine him picking olives, giving uh, a tenth to God. I don't know what you would do with a Kit Kat bar. It's only like in four pieces. Like how do you, how do you tie that? <laughs> but it, it's that level of religious activity. It's, it's over-righteousness in a sense. Sam Albury says over-obedience in one area doesn't do disobedience in other areas. Now at this point, it's very easy for us to be critical of this Pharisee, and here's how we might pray. God, I thank you that I'm not like this Pharisee. <laughs> and to keep us from that, we need to look at this tax collector now. Because the story shows us there's no room for boasting at all. Not in the gospel. And comparing ourselves to other people, whether you're comparing yourself to the Pharisee or the tax collector, misses the point because God himself is the standard and not other people. So notice the tax collector's humble prayer. He confesses his unworthiness in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows he's unworthy to be in God's presence. He stands uh, far away. He doesn't think he can draw near. Perhaps thinking of Psalms like Psalm 15 or Psalm 24, where 24 says, Who shall ascend to the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And he says, well, that's not me. He has so much shame that he won't even lift his eyes, Luke says, to heaven. And then he beats his breasts, which was a sign of contrition or sorrow. Josephus describes David beating his breast, tearing his hair, injuring himself, injuring himself at the death of his son Solomon. So notice the difference in attitude here. One is, is boastful. I, I thank you that I'm not like these people. The other standing far away in contrition and in, in, in uh, sorrow then begins to admit his own sin. God be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek has the definite article, the word thee. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Perhaps he's identifying himself the way Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he says the saying is worthy of full acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. God be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't call himself something a little bit more respectable, something a little bit more socially acceptable. God be merciful to me, an individual that has had an occasional moral lapse. God be merciful to me, for I am not perfect. God be merciful to me, one who struggles with some stuff. He doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't justify himself. And if we're honest, most of us at least would say we find it difficult to admit when we're wrong. The default mode of our heart is to justify ourselves. We'd rather talk our way out of 
ex, uh, 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 of being found guilty. Take, for example, excuses made for road accidents. This was published in a, a popular magazine. Statements people made when they were guilty of the, uh, of the accident. Here's one, going to work at seven this morning, I drove out of my driveway and drove straight into a bus, but the bus was five minutes early. Another one, my car was legally parked as it backed into another vehicle. So excuse me. Windshield broken, one person said, cause unknown, probably voodoo. <laughs> and this is my favorite one. I pulled away uh, off to the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. <laughs> we don't find it easy to admit guilt. It was probably the voodoo, you know. It, it was probably the hobbits. It was, there, there's some blame shifting. There's some excuse making. This is as old as the garden. It, it was the woman that you gave me. Double blame. But this guy's got it right, doesn't he? God be merciful to me, the sinner. And it's that broken and contrite heart that receives God's mercy. Notice his, his request for divine provision in verse 13. Technically, he doesn't ask for mercy. The word that's usually used for mercy, I did not realize this. I've looked at this text many, many times until this week. But he uses the word for atonement. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or God, provide atonement for me. It's, it's the word from which we get, or the word that we translate in English as propitiate. That is to turn away wrath by means of sacrifice. It's the word used like in Hebrews 2, 17 about Jesus who's made propitiation for our sins. That is, he's turned away the wrath of God from us because of his sacrifice for us. A true forgiveness and righteousness only comes through his sacrificial death. And perhaps you can imagine this tax collector thinking about a lamb being offered morning and evening there at the temple and him saying, oh God, make atonement for me. In your mercy, cover my sin through your provision for me. He needs atonement. He needs, he needs something outside of himself. And Jesus was well aware of where he is headed in, in, in not uh, in too distant future, where he will offer up himself instead of us, in, in place of us, on behalf of us. And we experience God's mercy through his transforming work on the cross. Jesus then makes the application. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the authority of Jesus, as I said at, at the front. That let's let Jesus answer this question about how to enter the kingdom. Jesus says, I tell you. Lots of voices out there. This is the authority on the subject. I, he says, I don't know what else you've heard about salvation, but this is the word that matters. The one with humble faith, the tax collector, this helpless man went to his house justified rather than the other. Ironically, the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. And the reality is, he's not. Only in a way he doesn't realize. He's not like this man. Only this man went down to his house justified. Why? Because of owning his sin, of, of requesting mercy, of looking to a sacrifice, of coming to God with humble faith 
And this is the surprise, Luke says. It is the tax collector that goes down justified. That is to be given right standing before God. That's the good news of the gospel today. We don't have to earn it. We, we don't have to. We, we do not deserve it. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I have nothing to prove and no one to impress. That is freeing, isn't it? Because of what Jesus has done for me, I have nothing to prove and I have no one to impress. He's justified. He goes down justified. The Pharisee is not. Why? Because Jesus says he's exalted himself where the tax collector humbles himself. Now, you, if you've been with us at all in Luke, you've heard this sort of thing several times from Luke. Chapter 14, verse 11, he said this. It's embedded in Mary's song, the Magnificat, how the Lord looks upon those of lowly estate. So let's learn from this tax collector. He feels unworthy. He calls himself a sinner. He doesn't excuse himself. He knows his only hope is in God's mercy and through his sacrificial provision. One writer put it well in a little poem. Two men went to pray, or rather say, one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high, where the other dare not send his eye. One nearer to the altar's trod, the other to the altar's God. Two men went to pray, so how do you go up to pray? How do you cry out? Well, this tax collector shows us. Now, a very similar theme in the next story, briefly, we enter the kingdom not just like this tax collector, but like, this, uh, like a child, Jesus says. And this little story shows Jesus' openness to all, that all may come to him. It's a story that's also emphasizing humility, emphasizing humble dependence. Faith like a child means we are dependent. It's easy for us to read our context into the Bible in, in various ways, and this is one of them, as we have high, a high view of children, and in many ways children probably uh, run, run our lives too much. <laughs> right? It, it, as one person says, we don't have a patriarchy or matriarchy, we have a kindergarchy. Uh, <laughs> In, in, um, in the first century, uh, children were quite insignificant. They were left to society's fringe until they were old enough to be useful. And many children died young. It was estimated, one writer put it, uh, that only 50% of children lived past the age of 10 in Jesus' day. Or as another put it, six of 10 children died before they were 16. And so as another writer put it, children were more desperate than cute. So that's, that's the context, okay? You've got children who are desperate, children who's, who, who they're not insured a long life and who are not viewed as, as particularly useful, and so they're sort of on the fringes, on, on the margins, and because of their vulnerable condition, you can imagine how people are now bringing their children to Jesus, please touch my child. My child is dependent, my child is in need. And so they're bringing infants in arms to Jesus that he may touch them. It's somewhat reminiscent to, to Jacob uh, who laid his hands on his, on his kids to bless them. They want Jesus to, to bless their children. And as these infants are being brought to Jesus, the disciples rebuke the parents. Why? Again, because children were kept in the background of the ancient world. They were not to interrupt the lives of their parents. And so the, the disciples basically think Jesus is too important and he's too busy to mess with these children. And so they rebuke the parents. But Jesus thinks otherwise. 
You would not find a rabbi in Jesus' day showing sympathy to children, to, to stopping what he's doing in the middle of something important. But Jesus has time for everyone. And the tense of the verb here, they were, they were bringing him, implies that this probably happened often. And so three parts to this little story. The command of Jesus. He says in verse 16, let them come to me and do not hinder them. Jesus loves children. And so he rebukes the rebukers. They must be able to come to me. Let the, he's, he's saying in effect, let the vulnerable come to me. Let the weak come to me. Don't you love the approachability of Jesus? All may come to him. He welcomes those of, uh, on, the, on the low end of the social scale. Those who are dependent on parents for everything. We have access to Jesus Christ. I read where an entrepreneur one time spent $4.57 million to have lunch with Warren Buffett. We get to dine with Jesus Christ. We have access to Jesus Christ. He says, do not hinder them. Let them come. And notice also here the community of Jesus. In verse 16, he says, for to such belong the kingdom of God. That is, for those like children, those who are maybe considered insignificant in the eyes of people. We've looked at a bunch of them already in Luke's gospel, widows, tax collectors, now children. And Luke is putting all of these texts together for us to realize the kind of community that Jesus is assembling. Those who recognize their desperate need for him. We're the community of the desperate. We are the community of the justified. The community of those in need. And then the clarity of Jesus. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like this child cannot enter it. How do you enter the kingdom of heaven? He says, like this child. Now again, we don't want to read our context into this context because people have said certain things through the years like, well, the analogy is we come into the kingdom like a child. That is, we come innocently. And if you have kids at all, you think that's whack, right? And it was certainly not the case in the first century. They weren't viewed as being innocent, or sometimes we say that you come with an openness to the future or with excitement. I don't think that's the point. The point is these children are desperate. In their context, they were desperate for help. They were helpless. It takes years for a child to be able to do certain things on their own. And we come to God like that, dependent on him for everything. Now, some have said Luke places this story very strategically. And I do think all the ordering of, of the biblical text is important. And, and if you look at how it's a, it's a structural sandwich, you've got a story of a Pharisee who is self-justifying, who doesn't recognize his need, who thinks he's better than everyone else, followed by a story of the rich young ruler who says he's kept all the commandments since his youth. And right in between... A story where Jesus says, if you don't come like this, you can't come. It's a well-positioned text. In other words, he says, you don't come into the kingdom strutting around bragging about your religious performance, about all your tithing, about how you haven't broken a commandment. You come with spiritual poverty. You come with nothing to offer. So my friends, there are lots of questions in life. There are lots of questions we'll try to answer even this day. 
But this is the most important question. How do you enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you come like this tax collector. You come like a child. You come in humble, dependent faith. And that spirit is conveyed in the great hymn we sing here a lot, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. If you're not a Christian, Jesus welcomes you. It's not about how much education you have, the background you have. It's about coming to Jesus. All you need is need. The question is, do you have it? And if you come to him, he will receive you. You can, you can make this prayer your prayer right now. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And go down justified, knowing you have nothing to prove now and no one to impress. And if you are a Christian, let's give praise to God. <laughs> he has been merciful to me, the sinner. He has provided atonement for me. He has provided atonement for you. And let's be encouraged this morning knowing that one day our faith will end in sight. One day soon we're going to see this Savior, the one who's welcomed us. And we will be with the redeemed from every tribe, people, language, and nation. All who've come to him with humble, dependent faith. And we will see with our own eyes what his, see with our own eyes that his words are true. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And we'll be in that number. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you today, today for your word, for the clarity of it, the power of it, the uniqueness of it. Thank you that you have received us as we were, and you've transformed us. You've given us a new standing before you, and we praise you. We praise you for your mercy today. May we never get over your grace and your mercy. May we never get over what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can say, regardless of what else we might say in this life, that we've been justified before God. The big thing is done, and we praise you for that. We pray you would keep us humble as we come into the kingdom humbly. May we walk in humility. As we come into the kingdom by faith, that we would continue to walk by faith until we see our Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.